0: This morning's passage can be found in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. It's printed in your bulletin, or you could follow along in your own Bibles. Uh, let me ask you if you're able, if you'd please stand for the reading of God's Word. And then we will say together this passage from chapter 3 that we're memorizing as a church. First of all, would you give your ears to the reading of God's Word from Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who, by patience in well doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Let me ask you to turn your attention to that passage from Romans chapter 3, and you might be wondering, why are we memorizing these passages? Well, each of these particular passages answers a particular question. Romans chapter 1 answers the question, what is the gospel? Later, when we memorize Romans chapter 6, it will answer the question, what should we do with our sin? Romans 3, the one we're now memorizing together, answers the question, can any man be saved by his works? Is any man righteous in and of his own accord? So let's read together this passage from Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Amen. Please be seated. And would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we ask this morning as we look together at your word, that you, your spirit, would guide us. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Would you make your word to have its work in our hearts, that we would repent of our sin? And trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, and that as your Spirit works, we would be made more and more like Him, our Lord and Savior. We thank you, we honor you, and glorify you, our Father, and it's in your name we ask all of this. Amen. Well, when I was... In 11th grade, I had the opportunity at my high school to take a personal finance class. Personal finance class. I have to say it was probably my favorite class of all of high school. I enjoyed it for a variety of reasons. I'm an entrepreneur at heart. I love mathematics, and I enjoy studying finances to see how fiscal responsibility can be productive in life. It really was a great exercise And I remember of all the things that I learned that year in that personal finance class, by far the most valuable and intriguing concept was the idea of compounding interest. First time I'd heard about it, compounding interest, right? The idea that not only does uh, interest grow on the principle, but interest grows on the interest that comes from the principal It's the, the reproduction of money. It was an amazing concept, and that whole year in that class, we studied stocks and mutual funds and bonds and CDs. We even had the opportunity to invest our own money in the stock market and to watch it grow. It was absolutely a, a wonderful and exciting opportunity to look at the value of compounding interest in personal finances. Well, in case you're unaware, the Apostle Paul actually uses a financial or resource phrase in this morning's passage that actually speaks about compounding interest. I'm not sure if you noticed it. It comes in verse 5. Verse 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. That phrase, storing up, is a phrase that is almost always used of financial things. It's a phrase that means to store away, to build up, to save for a rainy day. It's the phrase that would be used of you depositing your money into a bank account. And this morning, the Apostle Paul uses it to describe the wrath of God. He essentially says that you who are born and live in sin... Because of your sin are depositing into a cosmic bank account the wrath of God, and it is growing and growing and growing against you. And you think about the beauty and the wonder of your 401k, all right? Now, compare it to just how consequential is the wrath of God. The Apostle Paul says, just like this, you as human beings are storing up the wrath of God for the day of judgment. And so this morning, these verses deal with the wrath of God. We're going to talk about that wrath, okay, the wrath of God. And you may remember, we mentioned this concept about three weeks ago. It was in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, where it says that the wrath of God uh, is, uh, is being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And at that moment, we mentioned the wrath, but today, we're going to extensively talk about the wrath of God. You may be wondering why would a Christian preacher in a Christian church preaching to mostly Christians, why would he speak about the wrath of God? Why spend so much time talking about the wrath of God? Two reasons I can think of. Okay, First of all there are unbelievers who will inevitably hear this message. You may be here today not having faith in Jesus Christ you need to hear about the wrath of God. But the second reason and the reason I think will probably affect most of you is this I don't believe, if if we don't understand the wrath of God, I don't believe we can truly understand the power, wonder, and majesty of the cross of Christ, okay? I don't think if we don't understand the wrath of God that we can truly understand the power, majesty, miracle, wonder of the cross of Christ, his death on the cross, and what it means for you and I. And so today, as we talk about the wrath of God, you will see you will gain a deeper wonder, A perspective on Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, okay? So this morning we will talk about the wrath of God. I want to make a number of observations from the passage concerning the wrath of God. First of all, it is the wrath of God. I think that's worth mentioning. And and it's simply because we have nothing to compare the wrath of God to, okay? Okay? We can talk about wrath as if we understand the concept, but we we are creatures who have engaged with other creatures. The only wrath that we have ever experienced in this world, experiential to us, that we can observe with our eyes, that we ourselves have seen and taken part of, is the wrath of other people. We have experienced the wrath or anger of other people. We have seen it in uh, kings and uh, magistrates who rule over the people and and, and they inflict some type of wrath upon them. But you see, the the wrath of God in comparison is exponentially greater. We see that this is the wrath of God again in verse 5. It says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be Revealed, And let me encourage you this morning, as you think about the wrath of God, that if you understand some concept of wrath, because you've observed it in the world around you, that the wrath of God is greater and more powerful and more devastating than you could ever conceive of, and yet you can only compare it to the things of this world. It's for this reason that when Jesus is speaking to his disciples and the others who are gathered around him, he says to them, listen, do not fear those who can kill the body and then after that can do nothing else. Fear him who after he has killed the body has the power to throw your soul into hell. I tell you, fear him. That was Jesus' way of orienting them to their heavenly father who has the power over not only life and death in this world, but over eternal matters. And who exercises his wrath against sin. See, Jesus will emphasize this point, and I believe Paul will bring it to bear throughout the entire epistle to the Romans because he recognizes that we utterly underestimate the wrath of God. Right? That it's human nature to look at God and say, oh, he's a good God. He will overlook my sin, he won't judge me, he won't. Pour out wrath if i 'm generally a good person, and so Paul recognizes that that 's the propensity of the human heart, therefore he goes about explaining the nature of the wrath of God. Let me tell you something I believe we 're at a particular uh, a, a particular we are particularly um, disabled when it comes to understanding this, that we are at, we have a, an uphill battle, and that is because we are an entitled people. What would you agree? We are an entitled people who live in an entitled generation and, and an entitled part of the world, right? We, we, we know that, and we're triply entitled, and so it is our nature to think that we generally deserve good things, Right? Whether it's justified or not, it is our nature to think we deserve good things. Let me try to dispossess you of that mentality this morning. I want to read a quote to you. This is John Murray uh, when he was commenting on this passage. Listen to what Murray says here. He says, if God had taken Adam and Eve after the fall and sent them to the lake of fire, immediately he would have been just. And they would have received no more than their full portion, that which they deserved. Furthermore, if he had not moved toward them, but had allowed them to populate until their progeny infested every foot of the earth, and had then brushed them all into eternal torment, the righteous angels of heaven would have been able to cry, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. All the earth is full of thy glory." This is a very important truth. God owes absolutely nothing to man. But God has continued to pour out his blessings upon man. So let's first grasp then the idea that this is the wrath that's being described in the epistle to the Romans. It is the wrath of the eternal, almighty, omnipotent God. This is the wrath that Paul speaks about. In this chapter. Second, the wrath that Paul will describe is full of fury, whereas the insert in the bulletin says it is a furious wrath. You may remember how about four weeks ago I told you that there are two Greek words for wrath, and one Greek word is the one that is most commonly used to describe the wrath of God. It was the Greek word orga and i told you how that's a slow building up wrath that is patiently being restrained well there's another word for wrath it is the greek word thumos and i told you that word is less often used to describe the wrath of god well both of those words appear in this passage in verse 8 in verse 8 at the end of the verse it says there that there will be wrath and fury wrath and fury. Those are the two words that are used to describe wrath, okay? So not only do we have the wrath of God, the orga of God, but we have the thumos. Now, you remember me telling you it's like a volcano, okay? It's explosive. It's full of passion Uh, It it is uh, boiling over, and that's the picture here that's being painted of the wrath of God. Not only does God patiently wait and build up that wrath, restrain it for a day of judgment, waiting uh, that people might repent of their sin, but we also know that when the wrath of God is poured out, it is a furious, all-consuming wrath, boiling over, exploding like a volcano. This is the depiction of the fierceness of God's wrath. It is zealous. It is passionate. Not only is God angry against sin, but he's indignant about it. This is why the Bible will often describe the wrath of God as a consuming fire. Or as we read a few months ago, as we're going through the book of Revelation, the wrath of God was described like a wine press that was crushing sinful human beings in the winepress of God. The Bible describes the wrath of God as a furious wrath, impassioned and zealous against sin. That is why Ezekiel, when Ezekiel was speaking of the wrath of God, Ezekiel said this, speaking as the voice of God, Therefore I will act in my wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. See, Ezekiel portrayed the wrath of God to the people who would have ears to hear. He portrayed the wrath of God as a furious wrath that when it was exercised did not have moderation and would not be found to have pity on anyone who deserved the wrath of God. Third observation from the passage. Not only is it the wrath of God and is it furious, but it is a miserable wrath, okay? The misery of God's wrath. God intends to show angels and men not only the the majesty of His grace, but also the misery of His wrath. We see something of that in verse 9. We didn't read verse 9, but it says in verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. And I think the words tribulation and distress are meant to communicate to us the misery of God's wrath. That is to say, those who are under the wrath of God experience it as an unending misery. And that is meant to capture the nature of what it is like to experience God's wrath. Listen, we, we have no human words really that can comprehend the misery of God's wrath in Scripture, there is always this binary dichotomy that as we describe the beauty of God's glory and what it will be like when we are with Him one day, so we go over here and we will hear the the horror, the heinousness, the misery, the tribulation, the distress that describe the wrath of God, right? And as much as one is true, so to the polar opposite is the other true. And there's lots of Biblical images that are presented to help us get a conception of the misery of God's wrath. But let me just give you one from Isaiah the prophet. This one for me is, is striking because it, it does emphasize the polar opposites of, of these two ideas. In Isaiah 66 verse 22, the prophet says this, Isaiah's describing the new heavens and the the new earth. And this is what he says. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And that's a beautiful passage, isn't it? We love to read the descriptions of the new heavens and new earth, Okay. There, it's, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, it is enduring, it lasts forever, and there God will be and we will be with him. How, how beautiful that is. But the next verse, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Isaiah's prophecy, the next verse is not one of those verses you're going to go to Austin and say, hey, make me a plaque to hang on my wall. I want that. Isaiah 66, verse 24, this is not one that you will hang on your wall. Here's how Isaiah continues, Okay. There we will be in the new heavens and the new earth, and Isaiah says in the following verse, 24, and they shall go out, and they will look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Isn't that wonderful, amazing, hard to understand and comprehend, okay? Okay. What is Isaiah saying? Well, he's trying to capture the idea of the misery of those who are under the wrath of God. And so here he has portrayed it in the new heavens and new earth. We will be celebrating with God. and It will be beautiful and wonderful and absolutely amazing. And they will go out and there they will see the dead bodies of those who have suffered the wrath of God in the unquenchable fire. He's trying to capture for those who have a conception of the future heavens and earth and the glory of God and the beauty of what it will be like to be with Him, trying to capture so that we might comprehend the, the absolute opposite of that will be the misery of those who are under the wrath of God. That our minds might comprehend the misery that's associated with that wrath. Not only that, but he's actually capturing one other idea. That is the extent of the wrath of God, the extent of the wrath of God is that it is forever. It is forever. This idea doesn't as much come uh, up out of our passage. You'll see, for instance, in verse 5, it says, you know, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're stirring up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, right? And the the day of judgment is a very popular, a, a very common idea in Scripture. You can read various places about the day of judgment, the day of God's wrath. And when the Bible speaks about the day of judgment, there's two different uh, days of judgment that the Bible has in mind. First of all, the one we read about in Hebrews 9, right? It's appointed once for man to live, uh, uh, once for man to die, and then comes judgment, okay? So we have the day of judgment that's appointed for everyone who dies. We live, we die, we live in a day of mercy where we have the ability to repent and the blood of Jesus covers our sin. It's amazing. But once man dies comes the day of judgment, right? Right? That would be the first version of the day of judgment. The second way the Bible speaks about the day of judgment is as the Bible speaks in Acts 17. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Right, And that's referring to the final day of judgment, right? That God has appointed a day, one day in the future, where He will judge the world according to Jesus Christ. And He will judge all human flesh. Okay? So, this passage, as we think about it this morning, reveals to us, and I, I want you to hear this, okay? Reveals to us that, that the judgment of God, the wrath of God, will be realized in an instant, but the Bible also tells us that it will last forever. Okay? It will be realized in an instant, in a moment, but that the judgment and wrath of God lasts forever. Now listen, I'm not going to go to all the passages and say, here, let me show you. Let me show you where this occurs. But you just trust me that the Bible is replete with evidence that the wrath and judgment of God is forever. Jesus himself speaks at least a half a dozen times about the unquenchable fire of God, about eternal torment and eternal judgment, Okay, we see it in the Old Testament and the New Testament that the picture of God's wrath and judgment that is finally realized in hell is eternal. It is unending. It will have no end. It is an unquenchable fire. Okay, so we know then that the extent of God's wrath, though it is realized in the day of judgment, it lasts forever. This is The reason why uh, R.C. Sproul, Dr. Sproul, when he was preaching through this passage, this is what he said. He said, the sinner in hell would give everything he owned and would do anything that he could to make one less the number of his sins during his lifetime. Because he will be judged according to his deeds. See that? That's That's a nod to the eternal torment of the wrath of God that will be endured by those who are judged according to their works. I'll read it one more time. The sinner in hell would give everything he owned and do anything he could to make one less the number of his sins during his lifetime because he will be judged according to his deeds. And so there's the misery of the wrath of God and the extent of the wrath of God. Final observation, and then we'll tie this all together, would be the, the objects of God's wrath, wrath. who are the objects of the wrath of God? The wrath of God is designed for the objects of His wrath, but who are they? Well, let me direct your attention to verse 6. Verse 6, he says, he will render to each one according to his works. He will render to each one according to his works, okay? The epistle to the Romans will continue to bear out this idea that the wrath of God is reserved for all human beings who will be judged by their works, right? That's the reality. And so the Bible will make very clear to us that the Lord God will not judge according to what we think in our minds, according to how we feel about ourselves, according to the relationships that we have, according uh, to the good that we think might be within us, the Lord God will judge all mankind according to their works. Okay? According to their works. Now, the person who knows themselves will at this moment say, I cannot stand before a God of wrath according to my works. I don't want to do that. That's a fearful thing. Rather, I should plead for mercy. Right? That's the, that's the wise disposition in this case. No man can stand before God according to his works. And you think about this, the day of judgment, as for as complicated and, and uh, as mysterious as it may seem, there's something very simple about it in that every human being who has ever been born will stand before the throne of God and the question will be asked, have you lived according to my law perfectly? Okay? According to your works, evaluated by my righteous law, have you done it perfectly? Yes or no? Very simple question, right? that all men and women will be evaluated perfectly by the, the righteous law of God, according to their works. So for this, then the wrath of God is being revealed. The objects of God's wrath are men and women who will be evaluated, who will be judged, who will be measured according to their works against the perfect law of God. Let me tell you something about this. I'm going to, I want to draw a little picture. I was having coffee with somebody from church about three or four weeks ago, and we sat down, they said, okay, first of all, um, I want to tell you, Romans has been great. I've enjoyed it, but let me draw you a picture. Here's what I've heard in the book of Romans, and I'm going to steal their picture now. It was a very good picture. I think I've seen R.C. Sproul draw this picture before, so maybe I'm giving credit where credit's not due, um, but the picture was very simple, okay? This is the wrath of God Everything we just described here. And as we read Romans 1, we saw... These are just people. This is a representation of people. We saw a picture that was being painted of people who are under the wrath of God. Many worldly people under the wrath of God. And we read Romans 1:18. It said the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Okay? And that's the picture we saw in Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And, and when we think about that picture... We know that in Paul's audience and in our audience today and in the congregation and the the Christian church, we know that there are many other people. They would call themselves religious people. I'm going to give them an R just so we can differentiate them. Religious people. For Paul, it was the Jews and the other religious people, but the religious people, And, and they were saying, as Romans 1 was read, they were saying, yeah, look at those people who are under the wrath of God, okay? You tell them, Paul... You tell them about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all their ungodliness and unrighteousness. You tell them that they have to repent. You let them know. And what Paul did was he kept going and he knew he had them. He's just going along in Romans 1. And okay, yeah, we will tell them. We'll tell them about the wrath of God. And then we get to chapter 2 and the apostle Paul says, oh, by the way, you also are under the wrath of God. And we talked about it last week because we said last week, Paul said, hey, you who judge others, Uh, according to your works, do you not know also that you will be judged for you do such things? You remember that at the beginning of Romans chapter 2? And so we began talking about this concept last week about the wrath of God being revealed against all humanity, both worldly people and religious people, both male and female, both Jew and Gentile, both black and white and all ethnicities and all people everywhere. The wrath of God is being revealed against them. And as we think about this picture, first of all, it opens our eyes to an understanding of the wrath of God, which isn't isn't simply just for the world out there, but it is for all human beings, the wrath of God is being revealed. And as I think about this picture, okay, you've got this, we talked about hell, uh, you've got this, you know, this picture of hell where the wrath of God is, is coming down against all people, right? Because they're being judged according to their work and it is the wrath of God which ultimately uh, puts people in hell according to their works, that eternal torment we just talked about, the objects of God's wrath where there is only misery and fury of the living God. And so this is as Jonathan Edwards was preaching to his congregation about this very idea, this is what he said to them. He said the, the, that world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone is extended abroad under you. There's this dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide, gaping mouth open, and you have nothing to stand upon, not anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but the air. Tis only the power and the mere pleasure of God that holds you up. Right? This was his way of communicating to his congregation that, that all human flesh is under the wrath of God. And if you fool yourself that the things of this world will keep you from eternal torment and the wrath of God, you are living naively and it has forever consequences. I find it interesting. M- many people have been very critical of the Puritans and they said "Would well, they talk way too much about the wrath of God. They're so infatuated with torment and judgment And fire and brimstone and the wrath of God, they are always talking about it. And that's one of the reasons that the Puritans today have gotten a really bad rap, okay? Always talking about the wrath of God as if to say like they they just love going around telling people, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. Like they find some joy in that wrath of God. But let me tell you something. I, I also love to talk about the wrath of God. I love to talk about the wrath of God. You may say, well, that sounds a little bit strange. Let me tell you why, okay? I love to talk about the wrath of God just like I I love to talk about the birth of my daughter, right, and the the months that her and my wife spent in the hospital. I love to talk about the wrath of God like I like to talk about the time I fell off the roof, okay, Uh, or the time I I blew my knee out playing basketball. I love to talk about the wrath of God like I like to talk about all the various trials of my life. You know why? Because now I have some perspective, right? I can step back and I can see the good that has come out of it, right? The beauty that God was working. I can see the beginnings of that. And I can see how the suffering has led to those good things and how without the suffering, the good things would have never come, okay? I love to talk about the wrath of God because through the wrath of God, we begin to see the beauty of the cross, right? I tell you, if you don't understand the wrath of God, you may talk about the cross and you may talk about what Christ has done for you, but you don't really understand it. You don't have a concept, really, of what Christ has done for you if you don't understand the wrath of God, because here's the thing, okay? What we know is that the Word of God tells us it's not religious people, it's not worldly people, it's not male or female, it's not Jew or Gentile, but that God has chosen a group of people, okay? He's chosen them from all parts of the world, from all walks of life. He has chosen a people for himself, from all humanity, and he has desire to make them his people, to set his affection upon them. But the way he does it is he doesn't say, all right, I'm just going to take you from out of my wrath. I'm going to moderate my wrath. I'm going to withhold my wrath. I will not judge you. You know why he doesn't do that? Well, in theory, he could. But he's a perfect God. And his character is consistent. And he does not change. He's never changing. And he's perfectly just. He's just and the justifier, right? Right? So this isn't what God does. You know what God does? He sends his son, right? And his son becomes the shield for us. That the wrath of God might be poured out upon the son on the cross. We're not removed from wrath, right? But rather the wrath that we deserve, that is ours, is received by Jesus Christ. Therefore, we become recipients of mercy. Because Christ has become sin for us. The reality of this is then the the forever nature and the miserable wrath and the furious wrath of the living God, the eternal omnipotent powerful God. Everything that we just spoke about now has come on Jesus Christ for us that we might become the children of God and the recipients of His mercy. He says, I will make you my people not by removing my wrath but by me taking my wrath. Receiving that wrath, and he sends his son, Jesus Christ, who becomes an ark for us, taking us through the flood, who becomes the sacrificial lamb of God, taking our sin upon himself, suffering the death, the misery, the fury, the extensive nature of the wrath of God for us, that we might be pardoned. Do you see how marvelous that is? Everything I described to you this morning about the wrath of God, every bit of it is true and every bit of it is directed towards you who will be judged according to your works. The wrath of God for you like a heat-seeking missile is trained on you, fixed on you. Who will deliver me from this body of death, the apostle says. And the miracle of the gospel is that God himself takes the wrath of himself, and religious people, and worldly people, and Jewish people, and Gentile people, all who are under the wrath of God are made to be under the mercy of God. That he made himself to be under his wrath, that he might receive glory, and honor, and praise, and dominion forever and ever, that all of creation, and especially his children, might sing together, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, not simply because he's the creator and he's the sustainer, which he is, not simply because he is an all-powerful God, not simply because he is just and exercises his wrath, but because he is also now God of mercy, which has been revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. And he has delivered us from our sin, he has saved us from the pit of hell, and he has brought us near to God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has become sin for us. He who knew no sin became our sin. And so we ask our Father this morning that you would help us to see That our good deeds, our bad deeds, they're nothing. That we ought make a pile of those good things we have done. We ought make a pile of those bad things that we have done. And we ought flee from them. And cling to Christ. We thank you, our Father, that you have been merciful. Not an empty mercy. Not a mercy that is contrary to your character. But you have been merciful by taking your wrath upon Yourself, suffering the misery, suffering the fury, suffering the power, suffering the pain of hell, suffering the torment, not for anything that you've done because you are perfect, but for all that we have done. And for all that we have fought, and for all that we have not done, and for all that would be counted as sin, and the cosmic bank account of the wrath of God that is being stored out for all of this Christ died on the cross, that we who have been joined by faith to you might be called blameless, innocent, perfect, righteous, that we would be called sons and daughters. We are recipients of mercy, so dear God, may we glorify your holy name, and as we continue to understand more and more of you and your mercy, may the gratitude in our hearts grow, and may we glorify you, our Lord, our God, our creator and sustainer, and our Savior. In your name we ask all of this. Amen.